Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. So last, last week, um, I want to recap real briefly. So if you've got your note guide, get ready to go. We're going to start taking notes here pretty quick. Uh, if you have a note guide online, you can fill, fill that in as we go as well. But we are in a series called Family on Mission, and the goal is to equip you all, the church, to understand God's design for the family, whether you're single, whether you're married without kids, whether you're married with kids, whether you are a grandparent, whether you're an empty nester. It's important for all of us as the church, a communal body, to know what God's Word has to say about the family, regardless of what season you might be in. And so again, today is going to be another sermon where you might be tempted at certain points of it to kind of mentally check out because you say, that's not applicable to me. But I promise you there's something in here for everybody as we go through the sermon. Um, But last week we looked at God's design for the family, which leads us to truth point number one in your note guide, that a strong and healthy disciple-making family is built on the timeless truth of God's intended design for the family. We looked at Ephesians chapter 6, and we talked about husbands are supposed to be leading the way in their homes, being the leader of the sacrificial dynamic, leading, setting the pace, serving, sacrificing for their wives and for their children, but also setting the pace spiritually. And that text in Ephesians says, fathers, you are the one that's supposed to lead the way in bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And so while mom and dad are supposed to do that together, fathers, you should be at the front of that, leading from the front as wives follow in submission to their husbands and continue to cultivate oneness in the home. We saw that children are to obey and honor their parents in everything and that that would be blessing and favor from the Lord as they are obedient to their parents. And so we also learned that parents, you have a massive, massive potential for influence in your kids' lives. Do you not? You do. Do you guys remember the illustration from last week? So for those of you who weren't here, um, this is going to have less of an impact for you probably. Um, But this is from last week's uh, sermon, and we're going to leave this up for the whole month. But the church has, I'm not going to pick these up again today, but the church has 2,000 hours of influence in the life of a child from 0 to 18. The school systems, whether it's public or private, has about 16,000 hours of influence, and that's what this box represents. But parents, you have, I guess I better stack these up so we can see how this looks here. Parents have 54,000 hours of influence on the life of a child. And so when we look at who has the most influence in the life of a child, we often just think, well, yeah, the, the, the schools and the church. If I can just get them to church. But the reality is, parents, this is, this is God's design. You are supposed to have the most influence, and the church is going to come alongside of you and partner with you in your influence. And so this leads us to truth point number two today as we recap from last Sunday. Parents are designed to be the primary influence in the lives of their children. The local church is designed to be a supplemental resource for parents. Leave that slide up for just a second, and parents, take another glance at it. We as the church, we are the supplement. You are the primary. That weight of how your kids turn out is ultimately on the sovereignty of God, and then underneath the sovereignty of God, it's you. 
And so we hear stories all the time. I can't tell you how many people have asked me in the last few years, and you've seen this as well. Brett, why are all of our young people walking away from the faith? Why do they graduate high school at age 18, go off to college at 19, and completely disavow faith? They walk away into atheism or secularism or agnosticism or some other thing. Why has that happened, Brett? What's going on? What are happening to our children? You don't want to hear my answer, probably. But if this is the most influential thing in a kid's life, my, my immediate thought is, well, how did you raise them? How did those kids grow up? Did those kids grow up in a Christian home where their parents were intentionally discipling them for 18 years? Or did they grow up in a home where their parents just took them to church and hoped they turned out okay? There's two different ways to live your life. And my encouragement for you today, regardless of where you're at and what you've done, is today is a new day. Embrace your influence. Embrace the reality that under the sovereignty of God, parents, you are the most influential person in your kid's life. At least you have that potential to be. Leverage it. Use it. Grow. Grow yourself. Be a maturing believer so that your influence will have a profound impact on the life of your child. And so when we see people walk away, um, that's ultimately up to God. I don't know why that happens. That's his, his to call, his answers to make. But I do know that if parents are just banking on kids turning out really great because they come to church every week, that's, you won't find that in here. You won't find kids, get your parents, get your kids to the synagogue. Parents, get your kids to the tabernacle. Parents, get your kids to the temple. You won't see that instruction. Instead, you see parents lead the way. Parents, raise them up. Parents, discipline them, lead them, guide them, pour into them. Parents, teach them diligently, as we're going to see today. So that leads us then today to, if that's God's design, if parents are the most influential people in the lives of kids, and if that's God's design, then from there we must ask ourselves, do our priorities reflect God's design? Am I living in such a way that actually reflects what I believe? And so I think the topic of priorities is one of the most important topics for every Christian in the room, because at the end of the day, we all have choices to make. We only have so much time in a day, right? And what you choose to do with it makes a difference on what trajectory your life goes, what sort of things you invest in, what sort of things you don't invest in. Those are all choices we all have. We have the freedom to choose, to say yes to that activity, to say no to that commitment. And so my question for you this morning before we get in is, have you ever thought about where your priorities come from? What determines the priorities that you have? What is it that undergirds your values and your beliefs, and the motivations that cause you to adopt some things as a priority and some things as not. And what I want you to see this morning is up on the screen that I think this, the way that priorities are determined is very important for us to understand. So if we put it up here on the screen, priorities are determined in this way. Our beliefs determine our values. Our values then determine our priorities. And then our priorities determine our faithfulness and our fruitfulness. So you think about it this way. If I believe that God's word is inerrant and without error, and I believe that God himself, the creator of the universe, spoke this into a divine book that is not like any other book in the world, if I believe that, then I value this book more than any other book in my house or my office. I value it. I am interested in what it has to say more than any other thing or any other person. And if I value it that way, then my priorities would be what? It's an easy answer. Don't overthink it. I would read it. I would read it a lot. If I believe this is the inerrant word of God to me, then I value it as true. 
and then I would prioritize it. And then that priority would lead to greater faithfulness in Christ and hopefully greater fruitfulness from Christ. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? Beliefs or your worldview undergird everything you do. If I believe that I am the primary spiritual influence of my two kids, then I will value my kids and I will not look at them as a burden. I will not look at them as a hindrance to me doing my life and having the best time. I will value them as the greatest thing God's entrusted to me in addition to my wife. And I will then prioritize my kids, not just for fun and games. I will prioritize their spiritual well-being far above my own well-being, far above my, my hobbies, my interests, my travel, my career. All the other things that I could pursue will pale in comparison to my commitment to them because they are the chief thing that God has entrusted me with. Those two kids are the only, I'm the only parent they have, right? I am God's design for them. So if I believe that, then I will value them, then I will prioritize them. And if I prioritize them by the grace and the hope of God in sovereignty, he will lead them to a saving relationship with himself. As I am pouring gas on that fire, I believe God will save our children. And my son is a testimony to that. My daughter's five, she's not quite there. But we read the Bible daily. We pray daily. We talk about Jesus daily. We read books. We're constantly in that boat. So if I believe that, then I must value that. And if I value that, I'll prioritize it. So my question for you is if you feel at all today that your priorities are out of whack, I want you to remember this and I want you to reverse engineer the process. So if my priorities are out of whack, that means my values are out of whack. If my values are out of whack, that means my beliefs are probably out of whack a little bit. So if my main priority is golf over my kids, that's a bad priority. That means you value something that has to do with you or yourself or your hobbies more than you value other things, which means there's a belief under there that you're the center of the universe or something like that. So I would encourage you to use that as a filter to determine how aligned your priorities are with God's because at the end of the day, there's a foundational worldview here. We are the creature. We are not the creator. And the creator, God, has designed and created all things. And what he has designed and how he has even ordered creation should therefore determine how we organize our lives. The creator sets the boundaries, and then we as creatures must live within and submit to those predetermined boundaries for life. Does that make sense? He's the creator, we're the creatures. We live in alignment and submission to him. We don't get to pave our own way. He has given us many instructions, many boundaries, many predetermined values and beliefs, and if we are to live in alignment with them. And so, as followers of King Jesus, who is our Master and Lord, we do not have the luxury or the privilege of choosing our own priorities based on what we think is best, what we think is most comfortable, or what even we think is most convenient. If He is King, and if He is Master, and if He is Lord, then he is the one that must call all of the shots in our life, including how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our lives. He has something to say about that. And I want to encourage you to dig into what he has to say with us today. So truth point number three. Truth point number three. We must be diligent then in letting the truth of God's word inform and determine our priorities. If our priorities do not reflect the priorities that God has outlined, then we must be obedient to bring our priorities back into alignment with His. I can't overstate this enough. I wish we could talk more, but 
We must be diligent, church, to make sure that all of life is run through the filter of God's Word. To let the Word of God not just inform your priorities, but determine them. And to see what God has said is what most important, and then to live our lives accordingly. So, what does God's Word have to say about priorities? That's what we're going to look at today. In a family on mission, again, wherever you're at in any stage of life, we must prioritize the right things. And I think there's many priorities that we could talk about today, but I'm going to list what I believe are the top three. And I mentioned them last week, but we're going to look at them in depth today. I believe the top three priorities for a family on mission are faithfulness to God, number one. Number two, faithfulness to your spouse, if you're married. And if you have children, then number three is faithfulness to your children. Now, I know you're looking at this going, wow, that's not very revolutionary, Brett. That's not shocking. That's pretty common sense, is it not? Hopefully, this is not shocking to you. <laughs> Hopefully, this is underwhelming. But don't let the underwhelmingness of this cause you to check out either. Because while this is easy to go, oh, yeah, those, those of course, will be the top three. Yeah. It's easy to, to look at that on the screen. It's hard to live that. Would you agree? If we're being honest, at least I know I, I struggle to live with those in that order. So let's jump into priority number one, faithfulness to God. Again, if you're a single person or unmarried or don't have kids, then this is a, this is a piece that's very applicable to you. If you are a Christian, this is, a, this is applicable to you today. In Exodus 20, we see three of the Ten Commandments directed directly at the reality of how God's people are supposed to re relate with Yahweh, right? We see that it's all about exclusive devotion to Yahweh, have no other gods, have no other idols, no carved images, do not take his name in vain. There are, there's this de desire from Yahweh that we as his people would have an exclusive devotion to him, and we learn that God says of himself that he is a jealous God. He desires and wants our affection and devotion. So when we turn, if you will turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to start there today. We're going to be in a variety of scriptures today, but Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a book that is primarily about God recounting the law and his requirements for his people, and it's kind of Moses kind of reminding the people. God has a really profound thing in the, in the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua, really, where it's constantly reminding God's people what they've already been told, and so there's even a principle there that how many of us need to be reminded of what we've already been told? I know that I do. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, uh, you're familiar with this. This is called the Shema. Um, this is one of the most famous passages in Deuteronomy. But listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 6, about faithfulness to God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh, our God, the, the Lord Yahweh is one. You shall, have, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And we're going to read the rest of that passage later on in, in, in another section of the sermon. But let me pray for us, and then we're going to dig in a little bit more. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you. I thank you that you've given us your word. It is trustworthy. It is timeless. It is true. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be the teacher in the room today. Please use me as an instrument in your hands however you will. I pray that all of us would hear from you whatever we need to hear and that we would have the courage to prioritize our lives in a way that's in alignment with your word and your truth and in a way that honors you and brings you pleasure the way that we lead our families. 
so that our kids, grandkids, spouses, and churches would see the glory of your great name from generation to generation to generation. Lead us and guide us, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is, there is only one God, and he is, he is worthy to be pursued and prioritized above all else. Would you agree? That's easy to say, and it's hard to live. Jesus echoes the same command when he talks in Matthew 22. He says, uh, in Matthew 22, 36 through 38, uh, somebody came to him and said, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus also addresses this reality in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, when Jesus says to his disciples, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. So we see here, not only can we do nothing without him, but our exclusive devotion is supposed to be to him, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and might. So this leads us to truth point number four today. Knowing and loving God requires complete devotion, holistic pursuit, that means head, heart, and hands, and total dependence. Complete devotion. Again, this is unconditional allegiance and loyalty and submission and obedience to Jesus. These are all words we don't necessarily like as Americans who are very independent. We think we have the right to do whatever we want with our life because it's our life and we're Americans and we're free. As, and there's truth to that. But as a follower of King Jesus, he calls the shots. He's the king, he's the master, he's the Lord. And if he has priorities for us, our job is not to say, well, I'm not interested in that. Our job is to say, what would you have me do today, King Jesus? And our goal is to walk in obedience with him and faith. This holistic pursuit is not just loving God with your head, but it's loving God with your heart and loving God with your hands. It's all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything that you are. It's not just knowledge about God. It's loving him with all of your heart, your affections, your desires. Do you find the greatest joy and satisfaction in Jesus rather than a, a comfort, a food, a sin, a person, a hobby, a career? Does your heart truly long to be with Jesus on a daily basis? And then your hands, head, heart, and hands. Does that knowledge and that love and that affection actually flow out of your life in a tangible way where others can see that you are actually following Jesus by the way that you serve, by the way that you love, by the way that you give, by the way that you sacrifice for the benefit of someone else, by the way that you put yourself last, by the way that you are others-focused, not self-focused? Is your life a holistic pursuit, head, heart, and hands in loving God with all that you are? And again, total dependence, seeking God for every need, being dependent upon him for every moment, whether it's a joy and a high or it's a low and you're suffering. Is he the place that you run? And really, church, this is Christianity 101, is it not? Walking with God, desiring God, knowing God. There's been more books written about this topic than probably anything else. How does a person have a relationship with Jesus Christ? 
Um, and walking with God and cultivating our love for him is literally the most important thing that we could ever spend our time and energy on. It's, it's, it's all that we have to look forward to now and for eternity is being with our king. One commentator says that the reality of God's love can only be communicated by those who have given him priority. So those who know him best have spent time with him. And those who speak well of him and best of him are those who spend a lot of time with him. And so, first of all, are you surrounding yourself with people like that? And second of all, are you a person like that? I want to be a person like that. I want to know God so that I can have conversations with you about God and talk about what it means to follow him and love him and serve him. And so, church, how is your daily pursuit of Jesus going? What does that look like? How's your daily pursuit of him? Because faithfulness is not just, I believe that he's real and I believe that he saved me. That's great. But what does that daily pursuit look like? Are you abiding in him daily? Because if you're walking weeks on end without really abiding in him, Jesus says, apart from him, you can do nothing. So then all of your spiritual religious activities apart from Jesus are actually probably not gonna be very effective at all. Because Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. So, How is your daily pursuit of Jesus? Is he genuinely the number one priority in your life? That's really easy to ask. It's really hard to live. Um, But I don't know if we think about that enough. We are so busy. That's probably the the, the, the most word I hear all the time. And I'm busy sometimes myself. But are you too busy to even spend time with Jesus? Am I too busy as a pastor to spend time with Jesus? And if that's the case, something's terribly wrong with my priorities. If you are too busy at work to spend time with Jesus, something is terribly wrong with your priorities. If we are too busy with whatever else to spend time with Jesus, there is something wrong with our priorities. Would you agree? I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm talking to myself as well. But we get our stuff so mixed up and so convoluted in our world, we think everything else is so important that we'll spend time with Jesus later when we're done with the important stuff. I've thought that. Have you ever thought that? I will get to him later. I gotta do this, this, and that first, though, because that's urgent. And if we live our lives like that, church, I I worry about where that takes us. And so I'm right in this boat with you as a pastor. My full-time job is to be a spiritual person. (laughs) Yet I still have to get up daily and pursue Jesus. I still have to get up daily and pray and ask for his help and guidance daily because I need it. So let's, let's pursue together to make him our number one priority and to do our best to give ourselves grace in the moments that we don't. But a healthy family on mission is comprised of healthy people. And by healthy, I don't necessarily mean physical, although that's a definite part of it. But are we spiritually healthy? Are we spiritually vibrant? And if we are, and that's gonna compose, and that's going to comprise a healthy marriage relationship as well because healthy individuals make up a healthy marriage. So this is gonna lead us to, to priority number two. Priority number two, faithfulness to your spouse. Again, this is applicable to any married couple in the room, regardless of whether you have kids or not, or what stage you might be in. And so turn with me now to Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five. We referenced this last week, but now we're gonna look at it in detail. And so if we are walking in faithfulness to God, hopefully then we are growing in our maturity as husbands and as wives. 
And then Paul gives a lot of instructions about relating in terms of wives and husbands and children and parents and masters and slaves. He gives a lot of relational advice or instruction, rather, here in Ephesians 5. And so follow along with me on the screen as we read Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. We're going to listen, hear his instructions from the Holy Spirit about what husbands and wives are supposed to do in terms of faithfulness. Wives, submit to your own husband's As to the Lord. For as the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, so that's what Christ has done, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Just lost my place, excuse me. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love your wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So I don't have time to go into all of the details of what's here today, but husbands, we'll start with you. Um, Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for the church. And you think about how did Jesus love the church? Yikes. How did Jesus love the church? Did he do a good job? Yes or no? He did a perfect job. He gave his life for the church. He literally laid down his life for a bunch of people who would ultimately reject him and rebel from him. Yet he did it out of love and obedience to the Father. So in the same way, husbands, we have this very high calling to die to self daily for the benefit of our wives to lay down all the things that we think are are important for us and instead to do what is best for our wives in Christ. And we do that not because we want to be great. We do that because Jesus has done that for me. And so Jesus is always the model. He is the example. He is the standard. Christ has died for the church. Husbands, we are to die metaphorically and figuratively for our wives, sometimes even literally. But the main imperative in this text is that you would nourish and cherish your wife. And you think about nourishing. Everyone needs to nourish their own bodies or they die. There's a constancy to this. There's a care. There's a thoughtfulness there. There's cherishing, which is not just a passive thing. It's a careful, intentional, purposeful thought and action. So Jesus being the example of this is a great place, husbands, for us to look to. How do we love our wives well? Look at how Jesus loved us and loved the church. So husbands, um, this, is, this was challenging for me to write because this is still stuff I need to work on. But husbands, is nourishing and cherishing your wife your second highest priority? And here's a harder question. Would your wife, how would she answer that question? 
Would your wife answer the question, does she feel like your number two priority, second only to God? It's a little bit uncomfortable, is it not? To think that God is my number one priority, that my wife is my second priority, yet do we live that way? I know personally, I'll be the very first to say I have a lot of room to grow in this area. In fact, it's, it's a long story that we can talk about sometime over coffee, but it's the reason we moved from Salt Lake City to be here. It's because I did not lead my family well, and I neglected my wife and for the sake of ministry and planting churches, and our marriage was falling apart, and we moved here primarily for stability and health, and we're still working on that. That's a work in progress, and I'll be the first to admit that I have plenty of things to work on, and I am so far from where I want to be, but I know that this is what God has called me to do. I know husbands, this is what he's called us to do, so there's no perfect husband in the room, and it is definitely not me, but I would love to learn and grow with you guys if you want to grow in that area too. Let's just be honest about it, because when we get honest, then we can actually make progress. So I have a lot of room to grow. If you're with me, you don't need to raise your hand, but let's rally together as men, and let's be godly, Christ-like men to our wives. And honestly, sometimes the best work we can do in our marriage is to pursue our spouse and their needs Sometimes the best work that we can do in our marriage is to work on ourself. For me, about 10 months ago, I went, to, I went to get professional counseling two times a week for like months. Because I had a lot of stuff to still work through. And not ashamed at all to say that I went and got professional counseling for 10 months. And that was fantastic. One of the best things I ever did. Christian counseling. Gospel-centered counseling. Um, changed a lot in me, and it's still a work in progress, but it's, you'll ask my wife, she's not in here, but you ask my wife, it was one of the best things we've done in a long time, and it's changed our dynamic tremendously. So men, if you're struggling, you need, you need help, and you're trying to hide it and be all tough and be cool and be like, oh, it's gonna get, it's gonna get better, don't, don't be ashamed to, to say I need help. I got counseling, I'd be happy to walk with you in that as well. So we all have room to grow. Wives, the main imperative in this passage for you is to submit to your husband to follow his leadership and to support him in those things. I know there's nuances here, but again, we see Jesus as the model of the leadership of the way that he, uh, the church is submitting to Christ. Christ is then the head. Husbands submit to Christ. Wives submit to husbands. Children submit to parents. You see all the submission going on? It's something we all don't necessarily like, but it's a very key ingredient in the Christian life. Submission to those in authority over us, and that's what God has intended here in the marriage. And I know that this message of submission is touchy in our culture, and it might even be touchy in this room, but I just want to paint a picture for you. No husband is perfect, no husband will be. But let's say for a second that a husband is genuinely making great progress in faithfully submitting to Christ. He's prioritizing his walk with the Lord. He's loving his wife, and he's nourishing her. He's cherishing her. He's sacrificing for her. He's serving her. He's leading the way. He's putting her needs ahead of his own, doing the best he can to lead the family in a Christ-like direction. In that scenario, do you think that a wife would have a really hard time submitting to a husband like that? I don't think so. And again, the goal is husbands are supposed to lead the way. Right? So if husbands, you're not leading the way, then um, that's a huge, huge part of the problem. So that's, that's a topic for another time. Truth point number five. Let's keep moving. When a husband and a wife live faithfully in alignment with God's design for their roles in the marriage, choosing to serve and to submit to Christ and to one another, their marriage will not only be intimate, meaningful, and fruitful, but it will also be a faithful image of God's covenant love towards his chosen people. 
Marriage is a great example of how do I love somebody unconditionally when they don't deserve it? Because it's exactly what Jesus has done for us, is it not? How do you faithfully love a person who doesn't deserve to be loved? Ask Jesus. This is what the cross represents. This is what marriage is meant to, to mirror to the world. An unconditional commitment to people who really don't deserve it because their performance is really not that great. Yet we're committed in a covenant relationship by faith in God. So the reality is that healthy individuals will hopefully make up a healthy marriage, and then a healthy marriage will be the foundation as well that makes a healthy family. And so healthy families are hopefully relational environments with a healthy culture of discipleship. And so this leads us to the last of the third three priorities today. Priority number three, faithfulness to your children. Now again, this is not going to surprise you that this is up here, Um, but as you are a healthy man or woman, husband and wife, that is only going to be a blessing to your children, right? The healthier that me and Nicole get, the better that's going to be a blessing to my kids as they grow up in a home that we're trying to follow Christ faithfully. So let's see what the Bible has to say a little bit more. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy 6, where we were just a minute ago. So get your Bibles back out, Deuteronomy 6. We're going to read 1 through 9 to get the whole context here. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments which I command to you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Notice in verse 2, grandparents, are you listening? You and your son and your son's son, those are grandkids. So if the Bible, you think the Bible doesn't talk to you, it just did, okay? So grandparents, pay attention here as well. Verse 3, Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now here we go, we're going to pick up what we haven't heard yet. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. And we could go on. The rest of chapter 6 is applicable as well, but we're going to stop there for the moment. A couple of observations. I've already mentioned one in verse 2. Remember that Yahweh is a multi-generational God. He's thinking of multiple generations. So when he tells parents to teach them diligently, well, if you're teaching them diligently to their children and then the children grow up to teach them diligently, well, then you've got grandparents and you've got multiple generations of Yahweh's name remembering him. And if you watch my midweek connection um, from last week, you learned about what happens when God's people forget him. You read about in Judges that an entire generation forgot the Lord and did not know who he was or what he had done. And when you read the entire book of Judges where it's this cycle of rebellion and sin, that's why. Joshua's generation was faithful to the Lord. The next generation was not. How did that happen? You don't just wake up one day with a generation of people who don't know the Lord. You wake up one day with a generation that doesn't know the Lord because the previous generation didn't tell that generation about the Lord. And the same true in our country. Where are all the Christians? Where are all, why do our kids don't know Jesus? Well, it's because we've got generations 
of homes that aren't discipling their kids, they're not growing up in the faith, and then we wonder why at our age they're not following Christ. It's quite simple. Generational discipleship has been cut off. And so for you, uh, the only generation you can control is the one that you're in with your family. So then also notice in verse 6, 4, 5, and 6, the primary command is to love the Lord your God with all, your, all that you are. And out of the overflow of that then comes the, the command to teach them diligently. Because again, parents, everyone look up here, whether you're a parent or not, here is a very true discipleship principle. You cannot lead people where you have never gone before. You cannot give somebody something that you do not possess. You cannot share authenticity, authenticity about something you've not actually experienced. You cannot help someone walk with God if you don't walk with God. You can't help them go deeper in their walk with God if you've never gone deeper with God. And so love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Love him first. And out of the overflow of the heart, the Bible says what? The mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the primary command, parents, grandparents, verse 7, teach them diligently. I love this. Look up on the screen. Teach them diligently is a Hebrew word, and it means to sharpen something vigorously with repetition. Just sharpen it vigorously with repetition. I think that's an incredible picture, a word picture for discipleship. What are we doing in our homes? We're vigorously repeating and sharpening our kids. This is what God's word says. This is what's true. This is what following Jesus means. This is how we live in a pagan culture. This is why we homeschool. This is why we don't go to these things. This is why we don't do that. Just constantly talking about why we follow Jesus with constant, vigorous repetition. And I know my son's in here. He's like, yeah, it sometimes probably gets old, Dad. <laughs> I know, right? It, does it get old sometimes? It does. But it's all right. When he is older, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is older, he will not depart from it. Lord willing. That's the hope. Vigorous repetition. So to teach them diligently isn't just sit down with a book, read it, read it, read it. It's this all of life word picture of discipleship. And parents, the spiritual education of your kids must be one of your highest priorities. Because I promise you, and I don't need to go into all this either, but there are millions of people in the world that they live in that are happy to disciple your kids away from God. That's proactive now. It wasn't proactive when I was a kid. But if your kids are in public school, you need to be even more intentional. If you even do private school, even if you homeschool, it doesn't matter what you do. They must be your highest priority in teaching them the spiritual things of God. And keep in mind, too, uh, author Vody Bauckham has this quote, and he says, your children are not the missionaries. Your children are the mission field. Right? We think we're sending our kids out into schools to win the schools. If they're not even believers, that's just a ridiculous paradigm anyways. But they're, they're, they're not the missionaries. They are the mission field. Our job is to raise them to become missionaries someday when they're old enough and strong enough in the faith. Then we can send them out in the world. But when they're young, I would not advise that, especially if they're not even believers. So what does this look like? Verse 7, teach them diligently. Then the, the, the passage actually gives two mirrorisms, which is like the word mirrorisms, but it's this idea that uses words that express a totality of something, but using two contrasting words or phrases. So like this, like when you do your marriage vows, you say that I promise to be with this person in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor. Those are mirrorisms. Just two contrasting words, but it means the totality of all of life, right? 
So he says, when, you, when you're at your house, when you sit at your house, when you walk by the way, that's a mirrorism. And when you lie down and when you rise up, that's another mirrorism. The point is not literally when they're laying down in bed or literally when you're sitting on your couch, although that can be applicable. It's figurative language. That means the totality of your life in private and your, the totality of your life in public. Teach them diligently. So when we go out in public, look for teachable moments. When we're in our home, look for teachable moments. Public, private, morning and evening. It doesn't matter where you're at and what you're doing. Find ways to instill the values of Yahweh into your kids and grandkids. Verse 8 talks about reminders on the physical body with the front lip between the eyes. They would often wear something kind of on their head. Even today, some Messianic Jews still wear these things on their clothes. And they bind them on their hands. They have the little Shema rolled up in little tiny scrolls that are anchored to the doorposts of their homes. And the point is not to literally have a scroll in your house. The point is to have constant visual reminders of who we follow. So whether that's scripture on your walls, whether that's worship music in your home, whether that's open Bibles on coffee tables, have a visual environment that tells your kids and anyone who comes in that this home is dedicated to serving the Lord. So the key takeaways, parents, is that we are to cultivate an environment in our homes where we have constant and daily reminders of the faith. And that can take on a thousand different ways um, that that looks. And we are to live in the world in such a way that the outside world can see our devotion to God and to see their universal need for Him as well. And parents, I think one really interesting passage in Proverbs 6 describes, I think, the results of this kind of faithfulness to our kids. Proverbs 6, 20 through 23 says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. Notice that that's basically just a quote right out of Deuteronomy. Verse 23, For the commandment, the teaching from the parents, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. You see how life-giving that is? When parents teach diligently, when they even practice discipline in the family, that it leads them, it guides them, it watches over them, it's the way of life, because God's words and God's truth and God's design is the way of life, is it not? And as our kids follow Jesus, Jesus says, I am the truth, I am the way, and I am the life, and as we point our kids to him, they will find life and life abundantly in Christ alone. Truth point number six. All of life is an opportunity for continuous discipleship in the midst of teachable moments. Parents must leverage these daily moments with word-influenced questions and conversations that point their children to love and to obey God. There are so many teachable moments throughout the day. One thing, parents and grandparents, I would encourage you to pray is what I need to pray more myself is when you wake up in the morning, say, Lord, would you give me an awareness to see the teachable moments in my life today? Teachable moments not only to learn and grow myself, teachable moments not only to, to serve my spouse and to give them what they need and to love them like Christ, but also teachable moments to look at my kids and to see where they're at, what they're learning, and what's going on, and how I can take that moment and point them to Jesus in it. That's a great prayer to pray. So let's, let's wrap up here. So to be an effective, healthy family on mission, we must remember to keep our priorities in the right order. 
So as you've heard these, first, these three priorities, God, your spouse, your children, are your priorities in the right order? Does your calendar reflect your priorities being in the right order? Do your commitments reflect your priorities being in the right order? Pursue faithfulness to God. Pursue faithfulness in your marriage. Pursue faithfulness in the home. And again, I'm, I'm using the word faithfulness on purpose because I'm not asking you to per- pursue perfection. The Bible doesn't ask you to not to mess it up. If that were the case, I wouldn't be able to stand here and say anything to you ever. <laughs> he commands you to be faithful. So there's grace in the midst of the things that we would love to see more, but let's be faithful. Faithful means a continual pursuit. Remember that Jesus then is to be the centerpiece, though, of all these priorities. We're not pursuing our spouse just because the spouse is so great. Jesus is the center of all of it. In our walk with him, we have to remember that Jesus is the one mediator between us and the Father. We're thankful for the gospel. We're going to remember and celebrate that here in a moment, even with communion, that Jesus is the center of our relationship with the Father. And in our marriage, we remember Jesus as the bridegroom who's coming back for his bride one day, the local church. Jesus is the model and the standard for how husbands and wives are supposed to love each other as Christ has loved the church. And in our relationship with our kids, we remember to point them to Jesus, the Savior, the King, the Rescuer. Point your kids to Him as the only means by which they may be saved. He is the prize, He is the privilege, and He is the goal as we help them grow in the faith. And if you are here today or watching online and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then that is your number one priority today. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that is your, must be your number one priority. God's design is he created the world to be in relationship with him. But very quickly, the world rebelled against God's design. They sought autonomy and self over him. And now we live in a world that's broken and marred by sin and death everywhere you look. And the only solution to get out of the brokenness to which you live in right now is to repent of your sin and yourself and to turn in faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, who is God, who is the creator. Yet John 1.14 says that he became flesh and dwelt among us and went to the cross and died for your sin, died for my sin, took the penalty for sin on himself. And the Bible says that the weight of that, the wrath of God crushed Jesus. He did that for you. He did that for me. And three days later, he rose from the grave, alive, conquering sin and death. And now he has all authority and all power in heaven and earth. And he says, if you want to have life eternal and life to the full, it's offered to you as a free gift. All you have to do is receive it by faith, by grace, in Christ alone. He is the only way to have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. There is no other way. So do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.